Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Arts and culture are assets to any community, and they help the economy, too. Coming up, we'll hear more about their economic impact, and we'll learn about new ways the arts community can encourage investment at a time when funding streams are stretched. That's later. First, Hartford Public Schools Superintendent Dr. Leslie Torres-Rodriguez will announce her recommendations to consolidate the city school district next month. Now, Hartford Public Schools have distinct challenges when compared to schools in neighboring towns and across the state. In the capital city, black and Hispanic children make up the majority of the student population, and the poverty rate is high. 85% of students are eligible for free or reduced lunch. The superintendent's recommendations for ways to consolidate the district comes after a period of gathering input from parents, students, and educators. Are you a parent of a Hartford school student? What issues or concerns do you want addressed in your child's school? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Now, Dr. Leslie Torres-Rodriguez is in studio with me, again, superintendent of Hartford Public Schools. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you presented to the Hartford School Board last Tuesday, and you said that this district restructuring plan, which again is in the works, is going to be, and I'm quoting here, a plan built by the entire community. So what have you heard? I have heard um, what I'm calling uh, emergent themes throughout when we have engaged our students, our families, our staff, um, basically, people want excellent teaching and learning in all of our schools. There's a, a sense, an urgency for making sure that students have access in all of our schools. Um, uh, urgency around fiscal sustainability. When I was speaking to students and staff, um, you know, I wasn't hearing, superintendent, we want more technology. Superintendent, um, we want um, smart boards in our classrooms. Yes, that's important, but our students wanted um, excellent teaching and learning. They wanted access to college and career readiness opportunities. They wanted increased AP courses. Um, and so we know that our students are informed consumers of their education and their, their voice is at, the, is at the center of this process. So what are the challenges? Again, you're going to be releasing your recommendations next month to the Board of Education on, on ways to consolidate the district. Talk about uh, the number of students you have in schools uh, in terms of enrollment as well as academic achievement. Yeah, you know, we have a challenging context. It is what I call our backdrop. And you talked about the need, our subgroups. We have close to 21,000 students. And compared to our either our urban centers, our surrounding districts, Harford does serve the highest in terms of uh, free and reduced lunch, students that are English learners, and then the highest in terms of students with special needs. And so that creates a challenging backdrop and context for us. Also, the enrollment um, is a concern for us. You know, when we look back four years, uh, the trend is a loss of 15% of our enrollment. So 2,000 students in the last four uh, four years. And we currently do, compared to our urban um, counterparts, uh, do operate uh, more schools with lower enrollment at 34% more um, in terms of our schools that we use, mm-hmm. um, that we operate. But, you know, the enrollment isn't there. Um, and so we look at all of these uh, complex uh, 
um, elements, right? And we put them all together, and we happen to be a system of interrelated parts. And so low enrollment, low use, small grade size, it does create school design challenges for us. And when you pair that with the need that our students have, then we are not um, creating conditions structurally or programmatically to meet the student needs that, that we have. So hearing that input from students, what about educators? What do they want to see in terms of support? And when you look at these challenges, including low enrollment, um, and you know, we hear about uh, teacher uh, teachers that leave in challenging districts and not being able to retain uh, talent, also trying to recruit more minority teachers uh, to um, you know be the instructors for students in Hartford. I mean, those are all challenges. How do you how do you walk through with your staff, uh, how to address those things where they're not discouraged, or it helps their morale to stick around um, um, for the, the plan that you have ahead. We did hear um, from staff and even from our, our principals or our, our school-based leaders saying to us that, you know, these, these challenges, the context in which I referenced, creates the um, implications around the small schools, right? We know that it's harder to program broadly for our students. We know that um, there's less flexibility for our staff. There's also the fact that we know adult learning theory tells us over and over again that adults learn best when practicing with their peers within the context of their work, when they're examining student work, when they're talking about instruction, pedagogy. And so when we're not able to create schedules, structures for adults to learn from and with each other, um, you know, we, we can't support their growth and their learning. And so that gets into our human capital, right, the, invest, the investment that we need to make um, in staff so that they can feel supported. And then we can attract, right, and get them completely embedded and invested in the work. And so it's a um, multi-pronged um, approach that we're taking to restructuring our district, not just about enrollment, not just about facilities, taking into account the resources that we have, people, time, money. Well, when you look at the number of schools, uh, remind our listeners how many schools uh, Hartford uh, Public Schools have uh, in operation. And when you're talking about consolidation, what number would be a good number given the resources and challenges you just mentioned? So we have 47 schools. And um, when you think about you know, some of our data points, for example, we currently operate 34% more schools relative to uh, the enrollment in peer districts. So, you know, if you do the math just on numbers alone, though that's not right, the approach that we're taking, if you do the math, you're 15, 16 buildings, um, of course, that's not the only way in which we're approaching this. We talked about last time I was here, the Equity 2020 process looked at this um, consolidation from a, an enrollment and a facilities perspective. Uh, we are taking a broader look at this. We're looking at programming. We're looking at pathways. These are some of the things that our community told us mattered, not just, of course, teaching and learning. They want to make sure that schools are safe, and safety in the sense that a parent wants to know the, the pathway and the options for their children mm -hmm. from elementary throughout high school. That's a challenge for now, uh, currently. We don't have that uh, clearly articulated for all of our schools, all of our families. This is where we live. Uh, you're hearing Dr. Leslie Torres-Rodriguez. She's the superintendent of Hartford Public Schools. Uh, next month, she will uh, release her recommendations to consolidate the district uh, to the Board of Education. Uh, you mentioned, Dr. Dr. Torres-Rodriguez, it's a painful process, uh, but student, students want uh, the ability to learn, to have the right resources, and the parents want to see their children succeed. That isn't always the case at some of these neighborhood schools. Uh, you mentioned uh, 15 to 16 buildings that uh, you know, you could 
get rid of, but you're looking also at the programmatics of these schools as well. And so when you're thinking about consolidating, like what's the magic number? There is uh, no magic number just yet, right? We want to also think about, by the way, um, and I don't know if you're if you're going to ask about the um, the influx of students that we do have, right? All of these uh, pieces fit together um, in the complex puzzle, and we also happen to live in within a choice um, ecosystem, and so that's also you know an element that's in the periphery that we have to consider as well. Um, but, you know, when we think about it's not just about closing, by the way, a school. There's uh, uh, options and opportunities to co-locate, uh, certainly consolidate, close schools, um, expand programming, expand pathways. Um, it's a broader approach to the work. You can join the conversation again. Uh, the Hartford superintendent is here to, to answer your questions as she formulates that consolidation plan. 860-275-7266. Alyssa is calling from Hartford. Alyssa, you're on the show. Thank you. Uh, good morning, Superintendent. How are you? Alisa Peterson. <laughs> Listen, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I, I would like an explanation in your own words to give you a fair opportunity, ma'am. Um, how many teachers have been suspended, unfortunately, due to the new DCF rules or, or oversight? Um, there's been a lot of criticism. Hartford's the rumor town. So I'd like to have you uh, give us an explanation, please, and I'll take my answer off the air. Uh, So it sounds like Alyssa is asking about um, how many numbers of teachers have been suspended regarding DCF violations. Can you give us a little context of that question? Context, I will give you context. And I was here actually um, before as well talking about the Office of the Child Advocate report that identified systemic failures on um, the district parts uh, in terms of uh, safety, safeguards, procedures, protocols to keep children safe and report abuse, suspected abuse and neglect. And so we've we've taken um, a strong stance around uh, making sure that we provide the capacity, uh, the, the professional learning and the uh, capacity building for staff around the reporting. And now we're shifting, if you will, to the adaptive level of work, and that is to create uh, systems and schools in which people feel safe. And um, and report happens not only as it relates to students but to staff as well. And so, um, we have seen um, an increase in the amount of reports that are made to DCF. Not that does not mean that um, these have been substantiated reports. However, that was a, a, a deficiency. I'm going to call it what it was. What it is, we had a deficiency in terms of our our reporting. We know that that has increased. Now we're working on investigating. Um, you know, DCF. Um, does investigations, and and we do our internal investigations as well. And so uh, the context behind um, uh, uh, Alyssa's um, question is around um, our action plan, which was in response to the OCA uh, report. And and student safety uh, is our number one priority. And so we're we're standing strong around making sure that not only do we build capacity, but we also do our due diligence in terms of um, accountability, keeping ourselves accountable to our commitment. Now, you mentioned influx of students. You're talking about the students that have arrived uh, since Hurricane Maria, uh, specifically from from Puerto Rico. We know some other Caribbean uh, islands were impacted. Can you walk us through how many students to date have been enrolled in the Hartford Public Schools and what that does in terms of, uh, you know, stretched resources and where you stand with state aid? It is a challenge for us. You know, we've had... uh, 275 students, and I'm not saying that the students are a challenge, right? The, the, the reality that 
we are here. We're committed to serving any any student, all of our students that come into our district. Um, that's a total of 171 families, and it is um, throughout uh, many of our neighborhood schools. Particularly, right, we have schools like Buckley, uh, Burr, Sanchez that have highest, you know, higher enrollment. We wanted to make sure that we had hubs throughout our district that were already equipped. Um, with our um, supports for not only um, academic supports, but also cultural, you know, cultural supports as well. Um, but our students go with their families mostly, and so they're spread throughout the city. And so now that creates an added um, uh, uh, a lens for us to think through in terms of structures and resources. And so we're still, um, I know that state aid came. Um, we are uh, still mitigating $1.9 million. You know, we started with a $26 million deficit. I was able to mitigate most of that. I was, um, you know, I did uh, request as part of the budget for a 1% increase to to the city. That was um, not passed. However, um, we went back and we mitigated some more. The challenge became um, a decrease in, in funds, federal funds, our Title I, Title II funds, an additional reduction of $2 million. And so um, I'm still short one9 when we talk about the the state budget, and you're mentioning it again, the reason you're on today is to talk about the restructuring po- process, this consolidation plan that you're going to announce uh, next month. How do you take that into account? You know, there's there's. I want to clarify. There, there's this no this expectation, uh, this perception that consolidating restructuring is going to result in significant savings. But as you heard me talk about the contextual challenge that we have around student needs. Um, we are going to reinvest any, if any, savings, right, on on programming and, and meeting student needs. Um, and so it's a broader challenge that not only we as a district, we as a city, we as a state are facing with regard to education funding, particularly, you know, in, in high, uh, in, in urban settings that have uh, high needs populations. Uh, we we know through the the chef legacy, we hear from parents who are frustrated with the process. You know, a lot of the uh, parents who have children at neighborhood schools where academic achievement is not great, where they want to see their children succeed, to be in an environment they think that will help them do that. Uh, there's only so many slots for those magnet schools. I mean, how do you reconcile that for these parents who are frustrated? This is part of this process, right? At the end of this process, we want to create a system, right, a network, a group, all of our schools to be schools in which um, the core of our business, which is teaching and learning, is excellent. And so um, that is that is a an answer to our parents, the fact that we want to make sure that in our neighborhood schools, right, that they have the quality that um, other programs offer. Uh, when you talk about input, I mean, it was interesting hearing uh, some of the, the speakers before your uh, Board of Education meeting uh, last week. Uh, one of them saying, you know, she, she envisions a time when if she says her child is a, is a product of Hartford Public Schools, there's pride. Yes. Yes. You heard me. Yes. Um, definitely. Yes, pride as, as someone who is a product of Hartford Public Schools and, you know, certainly um, was disengaged at times and, and did not, did not, I was not going to think that, you know, at, at the age of 12 or 15 that I was going to be the superintendent of Hartford Public Schools. However, um, we have the urgency is here. The urgency has been here. Um, it's now a matter of um, us as a community digging in, right, and saying this is what we must do regardless. And nonetheless, it is painful. These are hard decisions. There are going to be, um, there's going to be confusion. We're going to be in transition. 
Um, but we have to we have to push through. We have to push through on behalf of our students so that we can produce students ultimately that are that are ready for college and or career and ultimately contribute to the vitality, right, and sustainability of our neighborhood and our city. So walk us through the process, uh, Superintendent Laura uh, Torres-Rodriguez. Again, uh, you've been taking input in the fall. Next week, you're presenting your, next month rather, you're presenting your uh, recommendations to the board. What happens then? Yes, so um, present recommendations to the board. And as part of our, our consolidation school closure policy, um, any school that is being um, recommended has to have a public hearing. And so we'll go back to any of the schools um, and so engage the community. And the board has, this is their opportunity to hear from you know their constituents, and then the board will have to make a decision in January. Um, of course, as a superintendent, my job is to make sure that I engage and, and mine as much data as possible to make recommendations to the board so that they're well-informed, not only by the data, but, but also by the community. Uh, so they'll vote on this plan. How soon will we see this uh, consolidation uh, taking shape, 2018, 2019 as, school as, year? As part of uh, the recommendations, I, I did tell the board that I'm not only going to recommend uh, programmatic changes, I'm also going to make recommendations for process um, and how, uh, when uh, this this will happen. And so I, wanna, I want us to be mindful. We heard that from the community, by the way, um, to be mindful of transitions and meeting the needs of students and families in transition. Mm. Uh, one last point. Uh, when you talk about getting uh, input from the community, uh, there was just a Board of Education uh, elections and, um, you know, the current reporting that, you know, you've got uh, voter turnout is just abysmal. How do you get the community engaged when we're talking about the future of, of Hartford residents and their children? We, I've tried to be intentional. My team has been intentional in getting out there and, you know, not only in the schools, but out in the communities, in the evenings, in the weekends, you name it. We've tried to be at um, as many community events as possible um, to really hear from our community. Of course, you know, that's initial input. And then there's there's another level of engagement after that. And, and I think the, the, the beautiful part of um, this process is that when we pivot, when we pivot to uh, the design phase, um, community is, is going to be at the table as well. I, I want voice, uh, not only internal community, but external community. You know, I believe that student needs uh, should be not only met, but strengthened in and out of school. And that requires uh, community investment and, and, and partnership. Dr. Leslie Torres-Rodriguez, again, is the superintendent of Hartford Public Schools. Uh, We hope to have you back uh, in January when you have the plan uh, uh, released and we see what the district will look like in the coming months. Excellent. Thank you for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, what makes a community desirable? Good schools matter. So does a robust arts and culture scene. Supporting the arts is seen by some as a luxury when money can be tight, but leaders of art organizations say it makes practical sense when considering the economic benefits of the arts community. We'll talk more about that after the break, and you can join the conversation too. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The arts enrich our lives in a number of ways. Have you seen a play at Hartford Stage or attended a concert by the New Haven Symphony Orchestra? Chances are you paid for more than just the price of that ticket between the time you left your house to attend the arts event and returned after it was over. The arts contribute to local economies, too. The Americans for the Arts report found that in 2015, the nonprofit arts and culture sector in Connecticut generated more than $797 million in economic activity. Activity. Now, what does that mean exactly? Randy Cohen joins us by phone, Vice President of Research and Policy at Americans for the Arts. It's a national arts advocacy group. Randy, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. Also in studio with me is Christina Newman-Scott, Executive Director of the Connecticut Office of the Arts and State Historic Preservation Officer at the Department of Economic and Community Development. Did I get it all, Christina? You get a cookie for that. <laughs> yes, you got it. Well, I want to start with Randy. I mentioned this report. So tell us about this economic benefits from the arts community. How do you measure it? Well, uh, what we're in this study, we looked at um, just the way you introduced it, our theaters, our symphonies, our museums, uh, our local festivals, um, because we, I think we all know and appreciate how they improve our quality of life. You know, the arts bring us joy and inspiration. They make us feel creative. And, you know, they really create the communities that we want to live in and work in. Uh, but the fact is, Arts organizations are businesses as well, uh, and they drive tourism and support jobs. And so uh, working with the, uh, uh, the, the arts organization, the state agency there in uh, uh, Connecticut, um, Christine's shop, uh, we surveyed um, 1,100 of the nonprofit arts organizations uh, in the state, and, and we asked them about their businesses and their practices, and how much did you spend on people and rent and utilities and producing your art and bringing your cultural product to the community. We found, um, and out of that group, 324 of the organizations responded, just those 324 organizations spend $515 million dollars every year, $515 million of economic activity. And that's money that's spent, you know, employing people locally, purchasing goods and services in the community. Arts organizations are good businesses. Um, but like you also uh, suggested there, you know, the benefits uh, to the economy don't end there because, yeah, sure, arts organizations are businesses and they have an impact on the community. But unlike most industries, the arts generate that event-related spending. And yeah, think of the last time you went to an arts event. You know, maybe you had dinner first and paid for parking and dessert after the show and went home and doubled the cost of the evening on babysitting, right? So there's all that event-related spending. Um, so we interviewed uh, 3,321 attendees across the state, and we asked them, how much did you spend on your ticket? How much did you spend on these other uh, event-related expenses? The typical attendee to an arts event spends $27.70 per person per event, and that's not including the cost of admission. I wanted to get uh, Christina in on this conversation again because you are uh, the director of culture. <laughs> That's the other uh, mm -hmm. title that you have mm -hmm. <laughs> here in Connecticut. But uh, Randy was talking about what the uh, average arts patron will spend. Yep. Uh, but it's not just the, the residents in Connecticut. There are people coming from out of the state Absolutely. to, in, to uh, attend events. Yeah. Uh, talk about Walk us through so that impact. We found out through... Um, actually through Americans for the Arts, that over 65% of visitors to the state of Connecticut come specifically for arts and culture related events. And Randy, I'm using my older data, um, but I know it's probably in the same, hopefully it's increased. I didn't look at that little number, but I know that um, most people do come here 
uh, for arts and cultural events. And Randy's absolutely right. The arts are a business. And that's why, you know, it's really great uh, to be housed in the Department of Economic and Community Development because we believe that this kind of investment is about building thriving communities and is about community development. And so it's one of the reasons why in the office we piloted an amazing workforce initiative program earlier this year where we placed uh, young people who couldn't afford to do things like unpaid internships in arts organizations. We paid them $15 an hour, 12 young people, and it was quite a rigorous process for them to go through and place them in organizations across the state where they would have mentorship opportunities to make sure that they now have pathways to access these jobs all of these jobs that exist in our creative economy. So it absolutely is a business. And I mean, think about all the things that you do when you go home. I bet you I could like 70 percent, if not 80 percent of it is directly connected (laughs) to the arts or creativity in some way. The things that you do that you enjoy that make you feel great about spending time with your family or the neighborhood that you live in. Uh, Randy, I was citing a number from the Arts and Economic Prosperity 5 study that uh, was uh, conducted by your group, Americans for the Arts. And I'm just curious, when we look at uh, some of those numbers, you know, how does Connecticut compare with its neighbors, Massachusetts and and New York State, in terms of uh, the amount of participation by residents in the arts community? Uh, Well, um, you know, uh, in terms of uh, just population obviously you know you're surrounded by some larger states but just those 324 organizations had 9.8 million attendees uh and so if i look at the state's population um you know i think uh people really are enjoying and uh, engaging and participating in the arts um in connecticut uh, one of the interesting things uh, uh to christine's point you know of those 9.8 million attendees 15% come from outside the state. Uh, and so there's two really interesting stories there. So basically 85% uh, uh, you know, of those attendees um, are, are in-state residents. And so you've got a lot of participation uh, by the public at these arts events. Um, but you're also bringing in those out-of-state attendees, and that is a real kick to the economy. Um, so while, I'll tell you why the typical attendee spends $27.70. Those out-of-state folks spend $49.78. And so, you know, you see more on transportation. That's where you see lodging, you know, heads and beds and cheeks and seats. You know, the vibrant arts community, and this is not just in the big city, this is across the state, um, you know, it's good for local businesses. And we're talking about jobs. So, you know, we're talking about a $797 million industry here. That supports 23,114 jobs across the state. And those aren't jobs, just jobs at the arts organization. You know, think of the last time you went to an arts event. Well, you probably got a program at the door, right? Every time you go to an arts event, you're always getting paper. Well, someone in the community is the writer who had to write that program. And there's a graphic designer who did the graphic arts work for that. And there's a local printer. And there's a delivery business that delivers it from the printer to the theater. And so even just 
even just the program you get every time, you start to see how the arts touch all these other industries across the state. And, uh, you know, 23,114 jobs. That is, um, that's a big employment industry for the state of Connecticut. This is, true. this is where we live today. We're talking about contributions uh, to the economy uh, from the arts and culture uh, sector here in Connecticut. On the phone with us, Randy Cohen, Vice President of Research and Policy at Americans for the Arts. It's a national arts advocacy organization. Christina Newman-Scott's in the studio with me. Uh, she's with the Connecticut Office of the Arts and State Historic Preservation Office, which is executive director of the Connecticut Office of the Arts uh, uh, within the Department of Economic and Community Development. I'll ask you, Christina, you know, we, we always, we like to compare Connecticut to other states. And so yeah. when I ask the question about uh, neighboring states, we look at yeah. uh, economic activity in Connecticut uh, with the arts and culture sector, right. $792 million. Yep. But when we compare ourselves to New York State or Massachusetts, you know, how do we fail? And 15% of non-residents coming in, that's good, but room to grow? Well, listen, when we talk about spirit of our people, no one beats us. I mean, we're the best, right? Connecticut residents are the best. I don't care. However, um, Massachusetts does have a larger uh, um, amount allocated for the arts. I mean, I think they're at 14 or 15 million, whereas Connecticut has around 1.4 million. That being said, when the National Endowment for the Arts did a survey, we found out that more than 50% of Connecticut adults personally perform or create artwork. So we are chock full of creatives in the state. And also, according to the NEA, every dollar that we invest in the arts brings a $7 return. So that's that's pretty amazing. I mean, New York is a beast. I don't like to come. New York <laughs> is on a planet by itself. They're fine where they are. Connecticut, I would say that um, there is no state like Connecticut. And, you know, I think that uh, we see it in the diversity of all of the arts and cultural uh, organizations and artists that exist here. And I really am committed in this next. I'll be at the DECD for three years in May. And we're really committed to, to growing our workforce, a creative workforce, one that knows how to solve today's problems. And I think the arts is just a fantastic tool to do that no matter what sector you work in. Now, Randy, uh, your organization's been uh, conducting this report uh, for some time now. You know, what was the catalyst? And is the conversation changing where um, instead of focusing on the story, you're focusing more, uh, you know, to on the numbers? Are you trying to convince the policymakers this is something that should be invested in? Yes. Well, you know what? It's, we're expanding the conversation and we're changing the conversation about the arts from uh, charity to one of industry. We all, and I, we always talk about those fundamental intrinsic benefits of the arts, you know, food for the soul. They really are a fundamental component of a healthy community, a healthy society. Uh, and yet they it provides these other uh, cultural benefits as well. You know, it's good for the local economy. It's supporting jobs. But the fact is, we want our city, our state, our uh, federal legislators to be investing in the arts as well. Our arts organizations, in order to keep their arts product accessible to the community, we need that public sector investment uh, to go along with that ticket price to keep the arts affordable. And, you know, ask any legislator what their three priorities, they'll tell you, jobs, jobs, and jobs. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? If that's what they care most about, we're going to connect this arts and cultural product to what they care about. And we do this rigorous uh, study. Uh, you know, Connecticut, we've we studied 341 cities and states across uh, the country. This is a huge national study. It's the fifth time we've done it. Uh, we do it every five years. Uh, and this is highly regarded. Um, 
by those very organizations, those uh, leaders. So you'll see organizations like the U.S. Conference of Mayors, the National League of Cities, the National Conference of State Legislators. Those are where our elected and appointed local and state government leaders go to caucus every year and have conventions and talk about their big issues. And those organizations are national partners on this research as well. So, you know, this isn't just the arts community, uh, you know, saying, hey, we're out here. Uh, this is really quantifying something uh, in a way that's important to everyone, um, our government leaders alike. So, and to get to actually to one comparison figure you were asking about, uh, Massachusetts, Connecticut actually uh, does 25% better in attracting um, out-of-state attendees. Massachusetts, 12% of attendees come there from outside go. the state. And <laughs> Connecticut, 15%. So uh, we're doing great here in Connecticut. Is there a danger also, Randy, when uh, you attach numbers to the contributions the arts and culture sector uh, contribute to the economy, uh, when maybe not all the jobs uh, come through a few years down the line, or if numbers are down, do policymakers then look at that and say, you know what, we can't afford to give as much this time around? How does that impact it? We, um, you know, when we did the study five years ago, the numbers were down, but it was in the middle of the Great Recession. It's exactly what you expect. And what even the numbers going down demonstrate, A, Arts are an industry. They're part of this economy. Uh, but B, even in a down economy, the arts are an industry that supports jobs. And, you know, let's face it, when times are hard, you know, that's when our communities need the arts more than ever. Exactly. Uh, they heal our community. They improve our quality of life. Um, but we're documenting what's there. We're not, uh, you know, we're just taking a snapshot every five years. And, you know, in 2015, mm -hmm. Connecticut snapshot, $797 million industry. And by the way, it also returns $72.3 million in revenue to local and state government. This is the other thing our elected leaders are looking for. How do we get the revenue we need to pay for critical services uh, for our community, for our state? And so, you know, here's just one more benefit. We're just, we're just expanding the understanding and value of the arts to the community. Christina, I'll have you weigh in because you're here in yeah. Connecticut yeah. and you, we go through these, uh, these uh, legislative sessions where uh, it takes months to get that uh, budget. Now we're yeah. finding that yeah. the deficit is a, there's still a big deficit that needs to be addressed. Uh, you know, during the session, one of the things the finance uh, committee was looking at was ending sales tax exemption for nonprofits. That would hit nonprofits pretty hard. Yeah, it would. And, you know, I think in general, our legislators get it. They understand it. And, and you know, this is just one part of the story, right? We can't, the, the impact of the arts can't always be um, quantified in this way. That's We know that the arts, we believe at the Connecticut Office of the Arts that the arts are human right, right? We fully believe that. And the impact of the arts goes far beyond any economic impact we could ever want to justify. That's not why we need the arts. The arts makes us whole as human beings, helps us to communicate our stories in ways that uh, other, that language sometimes uh, falters. And so we all know, and I, we see it every day in our work, how the arts are changing lives, whether it's from, and I've said this before, an example of Judy Dorwin and the work that she's doing in the prisons, or, you know, it's, uh, you know, literary artists that are, you know, working with schools to, to tackle issues around illiteracy. I think that there is just uh, another huge case to be made. So I don't, it's not always dollars and cents. It's it's okay. about hearts and minds as well. And we know that. The story, yeah, wanna, oh, go ahead, Randy. Sorry, go ahead. 
Oh, I just wanted to totally, uh, I didn't mean to cut you off, totally underscore that. Uh, and you know what? The public gets that as well. Last year, we published one of the largest uh, public opinion surveys of the arts ever conducted, uh, you know, over 3,000 interviews as opposed to the 1,000 we usually hear about reported on. 73% of American adults say the arts are a positive experience in a troubled world. 67% of the population says the arts unify our communities regardless of age, race, and ethnicity. And those findings cut across all socioeconomic strata. So our public really values what the arts are doing for our hearts, minds, yeah. and souls mm-hmm. as well. Uh, Christina, you mentioned it's not all dollars and cents, uh, but you know, too, that mm-hmm. uh, artists have bills to pay. They bills, need support bills, bills. to um, you know, help them with their creativity. Yep. Uh, beyond uh, public dollars, how do you get uh, more uh, corporations involved? Is that a challenge these days? You know, it is a challenge sometimes. I mean, uh, there are organizations who completely... Uh, understand the importance of investing in arts and culture. An example of that would be like a Bank of America who has a long history of of, uh, investing in in the arts in Connecticut. You know, um, there was a really interesting report done recently by the New England Foundation for the Arts and it it looked on the creative economy and why they matter. So they looked at these creative economy jobs. And when you talk about creative economy, you're looking at like media, you know, publishing, motion picture, as well as visual arts, music, performing, etc., In Connecticut, when comparing to all six New England states, nearly a quarter, 23%, uh, creative enterprises employing creative workers are located in Connecticut. We have over 5,000 firms employing 59,543 people. So we definitely believe that um, artists deserve the, you know, you know, I know you've heard this where somebody says, you know, let's ask an artist to donate. Let's get them to donate something. We're like, absolutely All not. All the time. Absolutely not. You would never ask a lawyer to donate or a doctor to donate. Don't ask an artist to donate. Artists are business people. They're small business people, and they deserve the same kind of respect that many other sectors get. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Jill's calling from Hartford. Jill, you're on the show. Um, Good morning, Christina. Randy, it's great to hear you talk about how important the arts are in a community, and it confirms what we believe at Bank of America, that the arts make a difference, and we invest in the arts um, across the country and here in Hartford locally because they're a powerful tool to help the economies and that there are no great cities without arts. And um, beyond that, it's not lost on us that the creative economy spurns urban renewal, attracts new business, invigorates tourism, and sparks innovation. So I just wanted to share with you, it's not just the public sector you're looking to, but the private sector has a role here, and we're pleased to play our part in supporting the Athenaeum, the Bushnell Theater Works, the New Britain Museum here in Greater Hartford, amongst many others. Now, Jill, you're with uh, Bank of America here in in Hartford. Tell us about, you mentioned some of the the bigger museums that you're supporting, uh, but give us an idea uh, as a corporation, uh, some other... some other programs uh, that you do to encourage the arts and culture uh, uh, sector uh, around the country? So one of the things that we're very proud of is our Museums on Us program. So for credit card and debit card holders, the first weekend of every month in 175 museums across the country is free admission. And that we found brings families into museums and it helps in cities to um, increase the sort of the the love for the arts and the exposure. Um, We also do a lot of arts education funding. So we fund neighborhood studios here in Hartford as well as we do summer internships throughout the country that are arts related in the nonprofit sector. 
Well, thank you, Jill, uh, for your call again, uh, talking about how Bank of America is uh, helping uh, the arts community, not only here in Connecticut, uh, but nationwide. Before we head to break, we're going to talk more about investing in the creative economy. I wanted to ask uh, Christina Newman-Scott, again, Executive Director of the Connecticut Office of the Arts and and State Historic Preservation Officer. Uh, When you do accept uh, a private sector help, um, can that be tricky at times in terms of of what the private sector is looking in return? Uh, I, yeah, I mean, as a state agency, we don't uh, we have relationships with the private sector organizations that aren't necessarily financial. It's more um, in kind partnership. But I've seen that for organizations that we support, it can be tricky because private sector investment can sometimes be aligned with a marketing effort or uh, a, a kind of new initiative that is uh, that's connected with something that's kind of nationally relevant, right? So um, that can sometimes force organizations or put organizations in, in a corner, so to speak, in terms of their own mission and vision. But m- more often than not, it's not, mm-hmm. right? I, I think private sector organizations that want to support the arts understand that they're doing so for the right reasons and want to amplify the work of our organizations versus having them align with kind of, you know, whatever the new it thing is. <laughs> so I, I, I think that our private sector can do more, though. I will say that I, I, I would love to, if I were wealthy, I'd say for every dollar you give right now, it will match it, but I'm not. <laughs> but I still challenge our private sector organizations to consider the next time that they're doing work in the community to think about the arts and our arts organizations uh, and about the ripple effect, the positive ripple effect that that has if they were to invest more. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the benefits of arts and culture in communities here in Connecticut and nationwide. Coming up, there are traditional funding streams to support the arts, like government help and support from the private sector, which we just mentioned. And then there are not-so-common ways to fund the creative economy. Now, have you supported a Kickstarter campaign? What appealed to you about contributing to an individual or group in this way? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. After the break, we'll hear from Upstart CoLab and its takeaways on different ways to bolster support of the arts. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're talking about investment in the arts. Now, what are some new ways artists are connecting with the capital they need? Joining us by phone is Laura Callanan, founding partner of Upstart CoLab. It's a three-year nonprofit based in New York City. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So tell us a little bit more about Upstart CoLab and how it's connecting people uh, that are in the creative economy with investors. Sure. Well, Upstart is is inspired by the belief that artists are innovators, and we're looking to create opportunities for artist innovators to deliver social impact at scale. A lot of these artists, a lot of the creative people, they're they're starting social purpose businesses. They're working beyond the theater, beyond the concert hall, beyond the museum, and they're working through food and fashion, design, media, and entertainment, and they're starting businesses. Businesses don't run on grants or donations. They don't run on uh, government arts funding. Businesses run on investments, on loans, and on equity investments. And luckily, there's something called impact investing, where investors care about doing well and doing good, investing money to make a financial return, but also thinking about the social impact, the good in the world that this company can do through the product they make, through the goods 
that they deliver through the people that they hire and how they work in their communities and how they treat the environment. So Upstart Collab is connecting impact investing to the creative economy. I understand that there's been an evolution, so to speak, in impact investing over the last uh, few decades. Who are the impact investors today? Impact investors are everybody from you and me to uh, large uh, institutions, wealthy individuals, foundations. A lot of foundations are investing their endowments to align with the mission of the foundation. So there's really no limit now in terms of who impact investors are. A lot of the research has shown that impact investing is going mainstream, and that means that the next generation, as they uh, build their wealth and inherit their wealth, they're very much thinking about what it means to use their wealth to align with their values and to be who they want to be in the world with a focus on environment, on communities, on uh, positive things that they see that, that, that can be possible in the way that they invest their capital. And how are you finding these impact investors, Laura? So impact investors have organized themselves very uh, thoughtfully over the last 15 years or so. There are groups that bring younger impact investors together. There are groups that bring uh, families and and, uh, older impact investors together. There are groups that bring foundations and institutional impact investors together. So they've already kind of found each other, and these are great uh, audiences, great gatherings to talk about new ideas. And the idea of connecting impact investing to the creative economy is a new idea. Uh, You mentioned that they find each other, but what if someone has a a wealth advisor? How do wealth advisors (laughs) uh, think about this? Do they even mention it to their clients? It depends. And luckily, uh, many of the, the large firms are realizing that their clients are asking for it and to continue to be able to serve their clients well. They need to have impact investing as part of that conversation. Uh, so some of the, the largest firms have uh, acquired and, and organically built impact investing practices. And then there are smaller boutique advisors who exclusively focus on impact investing. So for people who are thinking about uh, how they want to invest their wealth and how to align this with the things that they care about in the world, if they're not already discussing uh, this with their wealth advisor, they absolutely should a- ask the question. And if they're not satisfied by the advisor's answer, they should ask that question to another advisor. I want to get our other guests in on this conversation. Randy Cohen's Vice President of Research and Policy at Americans for the Arts. Randy, we just heard Laura mention that impact investing has gone mainstream. How has your organization seen uh, this, uh, this vehicle of, of, of helping uh, artists find capital? How is that changing uh, the, the, the landscape, so to speak? Well, I think the artists are uh, uh, incredibly entrepreneurial and, I mean, you know, really the very personification of creative economy, um, but connecting that more broadly to uh, the business world uh, and even to the last uh, segment where we heard Jill from Bank of America and their fabulous uh, uh, art support. Um, there's a lot in this for businesses as well. I mean, there's doing the right thing. Um, but the fact is, uh, in a study we did uh, with the Conference Board, the Conference Board is the national organization for the Fortune 1,000 companies in this country, their research shows creativity is now among the top five applied skills that business leaders are looking for. It's even leapfrog the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic. Um, Of course, you have to be able to read, write, and do math. But if you can apply creativity to your area of knowledge, science, technology, engineering, whatever, you know, that's the key to prospering in this global economy. 72% of business leaders say creativity is of high importance in hiring, and the two biggest indicators of creativity are starting your own business and study of the arts. So there's a real link here between arts, 
driving creativity and creativity driving innovation. So that's they run really uh, hand in hand there. Uh, Christina Newman Scott, executive director of the Connecticut Office of the Arts and State Hist- Historic Preservation Officer. You work within the Department of DECD yeah. Economic yeah. and Community Development. This is the agency that yeah. we look to to right. get out of state companies to come here, invest, yeah. uh, open up companies, and hire people. But the arts is very important as well. Yes. Like, as as Randy and Laura were saying about uh, creative people, that's what these employers are looking for is too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, uh, in DECD, we have a variety of programs that that uh, support the arts uh, that uh, sit with outside of my division. So, for instance, the Small Business Express program is a program that actually, you know, artists who have, you know, that are, have small businesses can take advantage of. I mean, there's a loan component and a grant component, and uh, they do have to be able to create jobs from this investment. But there are all kinds of ways that uh, we're thinking holistically in at DECD to talk about how we how can we invest in the creative economy uh, and, and do so more intentionally. So you know we're we're very excited about that. And and to Randy's point, Electric Boat, a great example of an organization, a company that's going to be hiring thousands of employees right over the next few years. They're trying I mean, to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. I would argue that those employees uh, having creativity as a core skill uh, would be highly beneficial, right? I mean, we know that we live in a world that regurgitating what you get from a book, you know, of course, it's important to to, to have the education, but but the thinking creatively about our challenges is more important, right? Because a book is not going to solve a problem on the ground in a community where you live that's so different from, you know, your neighbor's community. So I, I'm working with Commissioner Smith and, and the deputy commissioners at DECD to really think about this kind of workforce development over the next uh, year. Uh, before we uh, end the hour, I want to thank Laura Callanan, founding partner of Upstart CoLab. Again, she's based in New York City. It's a three-year nonprofit helping connect uh, impact investors uh, with artists doing social good. Uh, Laura, thank you for your time today. Thanks. Glad to be with you. Now, uh, Randy Cohen on the line with us with Americans for the Arts. Now, you're coming to Connecticut. Tell us uh, what you'll be doing. Oh, I've got a great couple days. Uh, we're going to be um, hitting up uh, a number of cities across the state uh, talking about uh, really expanding the conversation about the arts to show that um, the arts uh, not only are improving our quality of life, creating the communities that we want to live in, um, but are good for the economy, are attracting this 21st century workforce that business leaders are looking for. And really what we're talking about is how do we build a healthier Connecticut through the arts? Socially, educationally. I mean, we could do a whole other show. I know you started the show today talking about education. Young people in education, rich in the arts, are performing better academically. When it's in our hospitals, we heal faster. So, uh, yeah, Christina and I will be in New yeah. Haven, Old Line, Bridgeport, New London. Randy, we got to go. We got to go. Christina, where are you in yeah, New Haven? Join us tomorrow at 3 <laughs> o'clock at College Street Music Hall in New Haven to hear more from Randy and the COA team. Thanks so much, Lucy. This is where we live.